Okay, our text this morning is going to be Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So if you'd like to open there, that is where we're going to be parked. But before we begin, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's entered every one of our lives and every one of our hearts. It's made us different, made this world different. We pray, Father, that you meet us here now and that you give us that same gospel, the one we first believed. And let us, beginning today and for the, every day for the rest of our lives, continually come back to that gospel, the gospel that first saved us, the gospel that saves us every day. And help us, Father, not to, to never mature beyond it, but to simply bring more and more of our lives under it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the question today is, what are your ultimate motivations? What is your ultimate affection? What keeps you going in the day-to-day, in the struggle? The struggle to find meaning, the struggle against temptation, the ever-present longing for wholeness and wellness and joy. What keeps you going in that? What is your future hope? What is your present comfort? What is your mission? Well, our, our text today actually helps us a great deal in understanding the answers to these questions. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The Gospel Transformation Study Bible, a Bible I enjoy a great deal, summarizes this section this way. This is the overview of what the sermon is going to be about today. These verses are arguably the most concise explanation of gospel-centered living found anywhere in Scripture. Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, zealous for good works, are produced by embracing the grace of God. Spiritual disciplines, scriptural memorization, and accountability structures have their place. But a profound encounter with the grace of the gospel is the only thing that can produce change at the level of our desires. The gospel produces such loving and longing for our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we desire to honor him with our lives. When that love and longing are present, godly behaviors follow. The more we understand the costly grace of God, the more we find obedience to God to be both joyous and easy. After all, Jesus, in fact, said, my yoke is light. My yoke is light. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm always profoundly confused by that statement. Um, because my yoke isn't anything like his, and I'm not really sure what he means by light. Maybe, they, maybe that word meant something different in the first century. But why? Why could he say, my yoke, him of all people, my yoke is light? It was grace. It was the grace of God that, that made it so. And our text states this, same grace of God, has appeared to all people. It's appeared to all people. 
this word appear is usually used in relation to the Son. Okay? In verse 11 it says, For the grace of God has appeared. And that is a word that is unusual here because it usually refers to the Son. The word in Greek is where we get our English word epiphany, which means a striking revelation. This is why the holiday in which the Magi come and see Jesus is called the epiphany of Jesus Christ. It's the sudden appearing of God in the world. And this is a word that the New Testament authors use a great deal in reference to Jesus. Now, the natural Greek use of the word is found in Acts 27.20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Okay? But the New Testament uses the word very differently. It uses it very, uh, poetically about Jesus himself, as we find in Luke chapter 1, verses 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness. Now, to give light there is the same word translated as appeared in Titus 2.11. So the grace of God has appeared like the sun appears in the sky. The grace of God has appeared. It has dawned. It has risen as the natural sun rises, spreading its light further and fuller over everything that it touches. Right? Today is a perfect example of it. You go outside and half the world's in shadow, half the world's in light. By noon, the light touches everything. The light has spread out fully, right? You can feel its warmth on everything. Well, this is what grace has done. Grace has risen up out of the grave, and it has appeared to everyone, and it touches everyone, and it spreads through the world to touch and fill everything. Grace has dawned and saved hearts, training us in godliness, setting us apart for the mission of God. Grace spreads from Christ to us, to the world. Those who are forgiven much, forgive much. Those who are loved greatly, love greatly. Those who receive boundless grace are taken up into the flow and become the very apparatus, the means of God's grace to spread into the world. The motivation to live the gospel life, to live graciously, is the gospel itself, the grace of Jesus Christ given to us. God the Father so loved the world he gave. You guys have probably heard me say that verse a number of times. It's one I love. God so loved the world he gave. And those who receive much, give much. True Christian maturity isn't knowledge beyond the gospel, but bringing more and more of life under its potent power, letting its light shine on more and more of our own lives. The triumph of grace occurs when the selfish sinner, estranged from God, becomes his treasured possession, zealous to live for the sake of others. Okay? This is what we're talking about. The grace that goes out captures people's hearts and motivates them to go out and be that same grace to people in the world, zealous for it even. And, and this is the process. This is the process that God uses to spread his grace throughout the world. Jesus appears, saves, and transforms sinners. His costly grace graciously teaches us how to live in this world as workers of grace. That's what this sermon is going to be about today. So to begin with, we have to understand what the motivator in our lives ought to be. What is the thing that gets us out of bed? What is the thing that gets us through the day? What motivates us to do all of the things that God has called us to do as husbands and wives and children, as employees, as citizens? The true motivator in life and our truest affection ought to be the costly grace of Jesus Christ. What is grace? It's the unmerited favor of God the unmerited favor of God. It means it's something you don't deserve. His favor comes to you who don't deserve it and rests upon you. That's what grace is. And, and this word 
is profound and dynamic because anything that is in God's nature fits into this idea. His mercy, his love, his goodness, his uh, generosity all fits in this, this word grace. His favor comes on those who are undeserving and it rests and it stays there. That's what grace is. Romans 5.8 explains grace very well. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We did not deserve God's favor, his love, but he gave it to us despite what we deserve. This is grace. But it's even more than this because it, it goes beyond what we need and don't deserve. God gives us an inheritance far greater than that. Right? This is one of my favorite things. He doesn't take away sin and restore us to the garden back where Adam was at the very beginning, like, like it's a restart. He takes us into the heavenlies with him where we will live forever. He gives us more than what we lost in Adam. Grace overflows. As Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that sounds like far more than what, what we don't deserve and need, right? We need salvation. We need restoration with God, but we get so much more than that. This grace is freely offered to everyone, as we all well know from Romans 3.24. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But a tricky thing happens here. His grace is free. His grace is a gift. No gift is ever completely free, though. Every gift you receive from your birthday present to Christmas cost somebody something. And it's here that we often lose a great deal of God's goodness and his love. Free often implies something that is cheap, something that has little value. In the hope of avoiding works righteousness, rightly so, God's grace has become a cheap thing. And cheap grace kills faith. Cheap grace kills our affections. Cheap grace kills our motivation as Christians. Think about the nature of gifts. Hey, let's think about gifts for a moment. You don't earn a gift. I don't charge my wife for her anniversary present. Right? I didn't, here, we're at dinner, I give her the present and I give her a bill. That's not how it works. Right? I don't, likewise, I don't pass a hat around the Christmas tree. Okay, kids. Reach deep in your pockets. This was expensive, right? That's never how gifts are. When you give someone a gift, it is utterly free. You do it out of the abundant generosity of your heart here. However, where did I get the gift? Right? I had to sit down and make it. God knows I don't do that. I had to go to the store and buy it, right? A child who sits there and has to color inside the lines is giving up something. That costs them something. When you go to the store and buy something, it costs you something to get the gift, and what I don't want to do is overcorrect now and talk about how grace is just free and that's all. No, we, we talk a great deal about how it's free to you, and it is. But it wasn't free to Christ. It actually cost him something. And we have to take these two things and put them together. You can't earn it. In fact, the more you try to earn it, the further from it you get. So don't do that. But at the same time, we lose a great deal of our faith, our motivation, are distinctive as Christians because we don't, we easily forget, we put out of our minds what it actually cost him to give us this gift of grace. The high cost of this free gift is something that we all need to wrap our, both our hearts and our minds around every day. It, this is the thing that needs to motivate us. Utterly free to us costs Jesus everything. 
And if grace is the most valuable gift that you've ever received, it stands to reason that it is also the most expensive gift you've ever received. Okay? Think of all the crazy things people, people can do. Sh- uh, gold-pelleted shotgun shells, right? Think of like a Ferrari with silver rims. Like the most, think of just the ridiculous things we could spend money on if you had a bazillions of dollars. Nothing in this world, nothing you ever receive, no matter how grateful you are for it, cost as much as the life of Christ. I mean, that, that just seems like basic logic to all of us. Our passage today explains what this means. What did it cost him? When I say that, what, what did Jesus have to pay in order to freely, abundantly give this grace to all of us? Well, it says in our text in verse 11, it says, for the grace of God has appeared. I'm going to stop right there. He descended from heaven. He, he was on his throne in heaven, and he left there to come down as a man. It says, grace appeared bringing salvation. He came with something in his hands, but he had to leave heaven to come here to do it. The grace that appeared was Jesus. He descended from heaven, he was incarnate, and his incarnation cost him a great deal. Think about Philippians 2, verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, as though he was rich. Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus set aside part of his richness as God to come as a man among us, to teach us what the gospel life is all about. He set aside part of his wealth to become poor. Now, I think we all have a hard time understanding this. But let me just for a moment imagine, I speak as, ma- as a man here, that you're God. I wouldn't give that up for anything, right? Which there, thereby my saying that proves I'm never going to be right, anything like God. Right? I, I go over this kind of stuff with my kids. Like, why does he do certain things to us? Why do we have to go to the bathroom? It's disgusting. It's maybe crass to mention that here, but think of all the things men have to do. I have to get up and go to work every day. If I stay up late, I am exhausted. If I had the ability to stay up all the time, I would never give that up. I would just stay awake all the time. But <laughs> the grace of God to even get into the manger, is he had to give up so much. It cost him so much to do that. And I think, you know, well, of course, I'm worth it, and so he would give that kind of thing up. Or it's, he lives in this sort of ethereal, cloudy space. We don't really understand what he gave up. He was an all-sufficient God who became hungry. Right? The burning bush is a fire consuming a plant, and the plant never burns up because the fire of God doesn't need fuel. It burns endlessly forever without stopping. And yet, he put on hunger for us. Okay? That cost him something. To actually have a nail get driven through your arm coming into the, into the position for that to happen cost him something. Okay? His incarnation, his appearing, as it says here, cost him something. But that's obviously, as always with Jesus, you're, you're, we're not done. Right? That isn't even, like, as much as that cost him, it, didn't, it wasn't as expensive as ultimately what he does. Verse 14, it tells us, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Okay? He died for us. He took on a life he didn't need and gave it away for us who didn't want him. 
Jesus gave himself for us. Grace appeared, bringing salvation. Jesus gave us, gave us his life because we can't attain life for ourselves. You owed a debt that you couldn't pay. You couldn't cross the chasm back to the Father, and so the Father sent the Son to the cross. 1 Peter 1, 18-19. Know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus had to buy grace at a great cost to himself, and he gives it to you as a gift free of charge. Who has the most expensive thing in the universe and gives it away for free? Okay, this is what I'm talking about. Is that our motivator? When we get up in the morning, is this costly grace the thing that we get on our knees and wrap our hearts and mind around so that we can go out and and live the Christian life? How often do we actually spend the time thinking about this? I'm struck by this every year when, when Easter comes and it's all we talk about is the cost of grace of Christ and then we move on and we, we talk about other things. Right? This is the thing that needs to get us up out of bed in the morning. This is the thing that sends us out the door. This is the thing that opens our mouth, that gets our minds thinking and processing. The costly grace of Jesus Christ. It's free to you, but it costs him everything. If we lose this framework of grace, it become, grace becomes something that's cheap. And how often do we think of free grace as a cheap thing? It's easy to come by. It lacks value. Something that costs nothing, that was given out, and is in such abundance that we can waste some, because, and it's fine because there's this dude just handing it out. There's this blues song I like a lot in, in reference to heaven. One of the lines is, and there you never have to change your socks, and the handouts grow on trees. And for many of us, that's what it's like. There's just this tree somewhere, and we just go pick some hand, right? Here we get some grace. I kind of, I only ate half of it, I chuck it. I mean, this is sort of how we treat it. It's okay that I'm, whatever I'm doing, I justify it, it's fine. God's grace is going to take care of it. And it's this cheap thing. It's, it's this thing that we, we get out, we use a little bit, we talk about a little bit, and then we chuck it. But in the parables, right, Jesus himself explains the cost of it. People find it, and they sell everything to come back and buy the field they found it in. It's so precious, you'll chop off a hand to keep it. You'll gouge out an eye to keep it. You will go to great lengths if you understand the value of it. You don't get up in the morning, go over a little costly grace in your Bible, toss it aside, and head out. You You don't just set it aside. It's the thing that has to stay, must stay, is front and center okay if you're having whatever you're struggling with in life this is what we're talking about the problem generally for all of us is what is motivating us what are we chasing are we casting are we with Paul and calling everything else in the world rubbish and garbage and refuse in comparison to the costly grace of Jesus Christ Grace isn't free. It costs Jesus everything, and it's ours as a gift from our loving King. Let us remember as we go about living on the charity of God, for we do nothing apart from his grace, the cost of his charity. I was helping at a food um, bank one time, handing out, there was this homeless gentleman there, and in my mind, if you're homeless and you're hungry, you'll just kind of eat whatever 
and uh, were handing out pastries, and, and there wasn't a strawberry-filled one, and so he didn't want one. And, and I mean, I have no problem with that guy, I, I, but it was... Oh, that's the grace you're handing out? I'm good. Sorry. You think you do this for other people. This is how we treat it. Do you have a different flavor? Do you have a different kind? Do you have something else? Are you offering anything else? Grace is a gift which we freely receive, but its price was the life of our living God. So we move on. We put this front and center. Putting this front and center, what does it do? What happens? The grace doesn't stop there. The sun gets higher in the sky. This costly grace is the example of gospel living. It is training grace. It doesn't come in and rest. It comes in and it works. It moves. It's like... um, It's like... um, Sorry. Yeast. That's what I'm looking for. Isn't that funny? Okay, I'll take a deep breath and take a drink of water and gather myself. The costly grace of Christ doesn't come in and sit and rest. It immediately begins to move. It immediately begins to act. This costly grace teaches us. It shapes us. It molds us. It reforms us into images of Jesus Christ. Okay, we're going back to the text now. Titus 2.12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, I'm going to go back. What is training us? At the beginning of verse 12, it just says training us. But if you go back in verse 1, it tells us what's training us. The grace that has appeared is training us. And what is it training us to do? It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This same word, train, (coughs) is a word that many of us, I think, are familiar with if you're into Christian education. It's pideia. Okay? We're we're all used to Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and pideia of the Lord. Okay? It's the responsibility of parents to bring up their children this way, but what does the word mean? Pideia is not just education in the academic modern sense of the word. It's enculturation. It's worldview training. It includes every area of life. Specifically, the pideia of the Lord is a view of the world in which the triune God is the Lord of heaven and earth in all of its implications, theologically, practically, culturally, ethically, aesthetically, relationally, economically, and so on. Education isn't neutral. Education, pideia, is about shaping the whole man, heart, mind, body, and soul. And so this is what's fascinating about this. The grace that has appeared is raising us in the pideia of the Lord, the worldview of the Lord, the character of the Lord. God himself, with this grace, it settles on you, and it immediately begins to work to teach you how to live a godly life how to live a godly life. So God is raising all of his children in the padea of himself. Okay? We raise our children in the padea of God. This is who the Lord is. Two plus two equals four because God likes order. Right? We have the, the English language because the God, God is a God who communicates. Right? This is for us. This is how we educate our kids. Well, the Lord is educating us the same way. This is how I want you to be because this is how I am myself. There is a great deal to say about all of this. It's a sermon series in itself. But we're going to narrow it down to two two ideas. 
So if we go back to verses 12 through 13, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are being trained. I'm going to summarize it in two things, godliness and hope. The grace that has come and rested upon you is training you in godliness and hope. Costly grace teaches us how to live like Jesus every day of our lives. It also teaches us to keep our eyes fixed on his ultimate victory. Godliness is about what we say no to and about what we say yes to. We say no to worldly passions and ungodliness. We say yes to self-control, uprightness, and holy living. We live in an age now of pornography and unprecedented personal debt. This is an age of aphorists. This is an age of large cars, large houses, large paychecks, and large debt. We live in a very, very, very self-indulgent age. Now, Titus 2.12 says, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And I think for most of us as parents, I think for most of us dealing with the culture of the world, we want to focus on that part. Say no. No, world, we're going to get away from you. Right? There's even, I've been reading articles about this new uh, monk movement that Protestants want to get involved in. I think some of you have been associated over years with that. Like, let's sell everything and move to the mountains, right? Or let, let's live here, but let's not participate in the world at all. We're going to say no to that. But that's not what this says. I think a lot of us in this age want to respond this way to a culture that's bad. It's just say no to drugs and everything else. But in any other age of the church, okay, this wasn't the focus, and this is a very modern problem in Christian ethics, the say-no mentality. In any other Christian age, the focus was always love, because that's what Jesus focuses on. We have lost touch with why we are saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Okay, this is going back to the idea about grace. It's free to us. It costs him everything. You say no to stuff so you can say yes to other stuff. It's not about one or the other. You're denying this in order to say yes to this over here. So we are saying no to ourselves. We are bearing our cross of self-denial to follow Jesus and to costly grace. We're laying things down so that we can pick other things up. This is the idea. Put down your kingdoms, put down your idols, and pick up the cross and follow him. Modern Christians have replaced a positive for a negative. Do has been replaced by don't as our guiding ethical principle. I do this all the time. I have kids. No, don't, don't do that. No, no, no. Right? And then I come here and I get up in front of you guys and I'm going to, no, stop. As if it's all behaviorism. Right? If you just stop doing that stuff, you'll be good. But that's not it. That's not what it says. True godliness is demonstrated by the costly grace of Jesus Christ is found in the two greatest commandments. Both are others-focused and positive. Love God and love your neighbor. Notice that. He's taken all the laws of the Old Testament, all the no, 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 and he's turned it into two positive things. Love God and love your neighbor. Modern Christian ethics in parenting and marriage, culture intake, etc. is self-focused and negative. No, and it's me. I'm denying myself. I'm saying no, and I'm saying no to the world, and it's very me-focused, and it's negative. Jesus says, though, oh, well, the Bible says a lot about self, self-control and self-denial, okay? 
I prefer self-forgetfulness, which is an idea I get from a Tim Keller book by the same name. You guys should read it. Self-forgetfulness. That's different than self-denial. But self-denial as a virtue is taught nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. Jesus says, deny yourself, yes, but he, focuses, he turns it then. Take up your cross and follow me. He directs self-denial outward toward a positive end. The point isn't that you're saying no, but that you're saying no so you can say yes. Meditate on that. Okay? Think about that. Don't just say no and don't just say yes. You're saying no to this so you can say yes to this. Self-sacrifice that offers and provides for others. Denying yourself to give for and to others. This is what costly grace does, right? He lays down, he becomes poor so we can become rich. He puts things down, right? He goes without in order to give us this costly grace. This is the idea that we need to to understand. The Christian life isn't defined by what you don't do, but by what you do, do. A man who never watches porn but doesn't nurture his wife in the word and prayer is still failing. This actually happened to me. There was a a man discipling me, and I was so proud because I was like, I don't, I haven't, I'm good. I've been really, I've been a great boy. Okay, you're praying with your wife. Okay, now you got me. I, no. (laughs) So now I have just as big a problem, it's just a different one, right? If you just say no to stuff, that's not virtue. That's not virtue. The person who spends all their money on their own pleasures can't give to the needy, okay? I know another guy, he was very proud of the fact that he never said a a curse word. He also never said a word of blessing to anyone, okay? (laughs) You're not, I don't, there's no badge for that. There's no gold star. Denying yourself to give to others is the example of Jesus' costly grace. He was denied the presence of the Father on the cross so that we could have the presence of the Father forever. Jesus became poor so that we could become rich. He told us to reject this world for his kingdom. He commanded us to die to ourselves to live for him. Do you see how it always works? No to this so you can say yes to this. Denying the aphorists and materialism of the modern culture isn't virtuous in itself. We are not meant to say no to our desires and leave it at that. Say no to your desires and yes to God's desire for you. Love God and your neighbor as yourself. The modern Christian focus on self-denial creates a man-centered religion of self. It, it, it sounds very pious and good, but all of this no, 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 self-denial, 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 this treadmill you get on is really just a religion of self. As if you are just going to flail yourself and deny yourself, and, it's, and that's virtue. That's, this is a modern thing that a lot of Christians want to get into, and it's not right. God so loved the world, he gave. There it is again. I cannot go five minutes without saying that verse. Love looked out. Grace overflew. Okay? It poured out into everything. Deny yourself, but deny yourself so that you have more to give. More to your wife, more to your children, more to your spouse, more to your neighbor, more to this church. Deny yourself so that you have more to give to those who are in need. At the end of verse 12, it says something very important. It says, in the present age. Because gospel living is about this world now. Grace is not a get-out-of-the-tomb-free card at the end. It's not just this thing that, here, here's my costly grace. I'm going to give it to you. Keep that coupon in your pocket. You're going to need it later at the resurrection. That's not the Christian life. Okay? You're learning to say no and yes in this world now while you're alive. Verse 13 expands on this idea. 
We don't just learn to say yes and no. We also learn to hope for the future, for the ultimate victory of God's grace. It says in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have something we're looking forward to. Hope in in the ultimate victory of Jesus lets us labor in this world without despair in the face of the disappointments and defeats that we all experience. Okay? You don't enter into the gate and it becomes easy. Jesus entered into the last three years of his life and it didn't get easy. Right? Look at the Old Testament. Things don't get easier. Right? You win. That's the difference. In my unbelieving life, it was actually easier to some extent in a lot of ways, but I never felt peace or victory of any kind. Okay, now it's harder, and yet I, I feel victory. I experience it now, right, in this present age, and I have this hope. I, I fail, and that's not the end of the story. Trump's hair isn't the end of the story, right? ISIS doesn't win. I mean, this is we are on the winning team. So not only are you looking at the costly grace as an example of how to live your life, you're looking beyond it to its ultimate victory over everything, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to keep going. I, I can't imagine it getting any worse than how it is, say, in your life. You look out in the world, and you're like, how could it get any worse? We have Trump and we have Clinton. I mean, three years, I'm glad I've matured, because five years ago, that would have, if I hadn't have, I'm so grateful for Obama, because it's eased me down a little. I mean, at this, I mean, I'm not joking. Five years ago, could you imagine getting any worse? And my dad's like, try saying that for 30 years, right? <laughs> every, every five years, it gets worse. But this isn't the end of the story. Costly grace won, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and there he rules all of this. And in Romans 8, 28 through 32, we have the, I mean, this is the promise here. He came out of the tomb, and by doing that, He's promised us a great deal of things. And just like him going to the cross was the fulfillment of a bunch of former promises, right? we look at that costly grace and we say, look at how he was faithful to everything he said in the Old Testament. Now he comes out of the ground, he makes a whole new series of promises, and this is our hope in Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Costly grace teaches us to hope in the reconciliation of all things. How does this training in godliness and hope happen. Okay, let's stop for a moment and say, okay, you keep saying that it's going on, but how? How does that work? Okay, well, this is why simple words in these long passages help make these things very clear. How do you learn anything? How do you train to do anything? Right? I teach my kids math. I explain to them numbers. I explain to them problems. I give them the problem. They do the problem. I correct the problem get to the point where they stop making mistakes on the problem, we move on to something else. You don't go out for a marathon and just run 26 miles. Okay? I don't go out for marathons at all, and if I did, I wouldn't just start running 26 miles. I'd run 26 feet, and I'd go w- work my way up from there. 
Okay? We get so terrified. We're so terrified that this angry guy in the sky who sent us down the road of life is going to catch up to us and he's going to be really angry about what we've been doing. But that's not how it works. He doesn't send us down the road. Right? He doesn't cost, the cost of grace doesn't allow him to put us on the road of life and send us off and leave us there. I'll see on the other side, he goes with us. We are far more shocked by our failures than he is because the program is a training program. You don't train people who are perfect. You train people who are not. And so when you go out, right, when you sit down in the morning and you meditate on the costly grace, you see how Jesus is interacting with people. You see what he's saying and what he's not saying. You see what he's doing and he's not doing. And you're like, okay, God, I'm coming to you because you're the source of this. Teach me to go out and do this. Give me the strength to go out and do it. And then you sit down at the end of the day or the next morning and you talk to him about how it went. And let me tell you, this is the thing that we... He's not shocked. Think of the costly grace. He knows what we're like. He knows what he needs to do and he's not done with us. He keeps going. Don't hide under a rock. Come to the fount of costly grace. Come there. Seek him. Knock and it will be opened. Right? Ask and you will receive. And then, when you, and then when you go into the world, try to do the thing he's teaching you. And when you fail, like, I bet he knew I was going to do this. I bet he knew. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and I'm going to talk to him about it. Imagine how homeschooling would go if every time the kids made a mistake on their problems, they hid in the closet. Right? Honey, how did homeschooling go today? I haven't seen Theo in hours. <laughs> and we all laugh. But how many times do we get up in the morning and want to hide under the bed? Amen, sister. We're terrified of telling him what, what he already knows we did, what he already knew we were going to do, because this is, he gives us exactly the thing we need to be trained in. The more push-ups you do, the more you can do, I've heard. The, the more miles you run, the more miles you can run. Right? This is, I, I apply this to reading. The more you can read, the more you do read, the more you can read. You don't work up to 130 books a year in a flash. You don't work up to a marathon in a flash. You don't work up to the righteousness of St. Paul in, in 10 minutes. Okay? We all need to calm down a little. Okay? We need to hope that this process that has begun is not going to end in failure. He's not done. The costly grace continues. It hasn't run out. It's still there. Okay, Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Every morning can seem like a crisis of faith. And every morning we learn that the costly grace is there in abundance. Hey, set it before your face. This is the thing that needs to motivate. This is the effect. You need to have all your affections focused on this costly grace, and you need to stick at it. He's sticking with you. I catch myself all the time praying, God, draw near to my kids, and it shows my disbelief. He's already there. 
we need to pray that we keep drawing near to him. He hasn't gone anywhere. The problem isn't him. The problem is us and our fear and our affections. Go to the costly grace, the fountain of costly grace. Go to Christ in prayer. Go to his word. Go to him with your failures, and you'll see he's training you. He's a faithful and loving father. Okay, this is how we're going to wrap it up now. You go to the fount of costly grace. You look at the cost. You look at the fact that it was free to you. You, you imitate it. You let it train you. And what you find in the end is it transforms you. It transforms you. Verse 14. Sorry. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what all of this has led up to. He died on the cross to give you eternal life, to give you his grace, to pour his spirit into your hearts, to go out into the world and say yes to godliness and to love your neighbor. And and he's transforming you to be zealous for good works. He doesn't start with good works and end in salvation. He starts with salvation and ends in good works. What you care about, what you're attempting to do in the world matters to him. And he's involved in your, in your life. He's come into your life to change you into people who love what he loves, who are zealous for what he's zealous for. Understanding the cost of Christ's love transforms our affections. Those who are loved much, love much. Okay, but why? Why do we have such a hard time with this? What's the roadblock? What are the reasons that this costly grace of Jesus is not transforming our affections? Christians who are trapped in sin often focus on coping or medicating the sin instead of turning to the great physician. Okay? Medications, overindulging in drinking and smoking and pot and food, Christians often try to earn God's favor or atone for their own sins, right? This is the, the, the treadmill that you get on, and you're just trying to earn, right? I'm going to train myself. I'm going to do it, God. You just watch. People, some Christians also, are overcome by the attacks of the enemy. Okay? These are all reasons that get our focus off of the costly grace of Jesus Christ, the motivator, the, the thing that should fill our hearts. Believing that, some believing that they have committed the unforgivable sin cannot handle the accusations and assaults of the enemy. Okay, they have, they're filled, filled with guilt and shame. Some Christians are simply distracted by worldly passions and worldly conformity. Workaholics, working so hard, I got all these bills I, I got, right? This is one thing I hear, everyone talks about bills. Well, where did, why do you have the bills? Was the bills two cars and a boat you didn't need? Because I have a hard time with that versus like an electric bill. Some Christians have grown apathetic and unimpressed with dazzling glory, the dazzling glory of Jesus' costly grace. Some of us are just bored with the story. Some Christians are desperate to be more than what they really are. Certainly, a mere wife and mother never became famous for being a wife and mother. Obscurity and plainness are the, are the two unforgivable sins to the radical Christian movement, which is so prevalent in our day. Right? You can't just work at Denny's and live a quiet life loving the Lord your whole life, doing good to your neighbor. No, you have to live radically because I don't know if you've heard this, but I hear this all the time. Plainness and obscurity are wicked, right? You got to be radical. 
You've got to get out there and you've got to do more. These are all reasons, distractions, noise, that gets us, our eyes and our minds and our hearts off of Jesus. Counseling Christians, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry isn't about behaviorism. It's about affections. I sit down with people, Dean and I sit down with people, and this is what it comes down to. What do you love? Who loves you? Whose affection are you trying to secure? What is motivating you? What is your passion? God saved you and communes with you. Grace appeared, grace trains, grace is redeeming and purifying you to be zealous for good works. If you're not zealous for good works, you're having an affection problem. And it isn't just doing the right things, it's going back to the source. It's going back to the source. And I really am going to finish now. We had read for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6. We had read for us verse 1 through 11. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to go over this for a moment. In this section, St. Paul says in verse 1, We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Has the grace of God come into your house, and is it sitting in a comfortable chair by the fire? Is it training you? Is it working? Is it, are you going along, following the Lord, carrying your cross? For God says in verse 2, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. He listens to us, and he saves us. And he goes on to say, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Okay, this costly grace is not a story you tell about when you first believed. It's not this great thing that's going to happen at the very end. Again, the get out of the tomb free card. Today, behold, today, he's listening. Today is the day of salvation. St. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 to 13, and this is how we're going to close. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Hold on. We have spoken freely to you, Redeemers. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. The problem is not the gospel. The problem is not the scriptures. The problem is not the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, or God the Father. The problem is not the church. The problem is not our urban context. The busyness of life or the size of our families. The problem is not the Democratic Party, the Supreme Court, or pop culture. The problem is not your circumstances. The problem is our affections. To equip you for the work of ministry, to counsel you in whatever ails you, brothers and sisters, I am here to say this. The problem is our affections. To feel zeal, to restore the joy of our salvation, to reinstate the love of God, zealousness for good works, I give you the costly grace of Jesus Christ. Go back to that. Don't leave that. Stay there. Remain there. Let that fill your heart. Jesus appeared among you. You didn't want him. You didn't deserve him or desire him. 
but he died for you and he lives so that you can live forever with him and with his father so that you could do the same things he did in this world. Grace has triumphed. And, it's, and it, the triumph of grace in the world starts in each one of our hearts with our affections. Grace is dawned and it's spreading over every inch of this world. The grace is freely offered to each of you. You can't earn it. It's free to you and it costs Jesus everything. Loved ones, it costs him everything. And he thinks... He knows that you are worth it. You are worth it to him. And so let's live like it. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your grace. We know, Father, that you are not unfaithful. We know that you do not waver. We know that you are not weak. We know that you are overcoming the world. We know that you have overcome our sin. We know, Father, that you died for us. And it astounds and startles us to say this but in your sight we are your prized possessions and we pray father for the grace to live as your prized possessions give us hearts to receive the costly grace of jesus christ and work through us to pour that costly grace into the world and amen